Hello, 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 it's me. Welcome back to the podcast. We have got a longer episode for you today. Prepare to sink into the delightful tones of three of my very favourite people I am talking about. Alan Cumming, Len Penny and Courtney Stoddard. Now, this is a salon that we did last year. It was a special for Book Week Scotland in their 10th fabulous year. And it was just the loveliest night raising funds for a charity that we just absolutely adore. The Scottish Book Trust is, well, it's one of the one of the places and people who do good in the world. They're the national charity aiming to change lives through reading and writing. They work with children and people from all ages and background. And every year they run an urgent children's book appeal, which gets over 65,000 books delivered to children and families across Scotland. So... It was lovely to host an event for the Scottish Book Trust uh, and even lovelier to talk to my guests. So we had two poets, Courtney Stoddard and Len Penny, who you might have glimpsed on the big Scottish Book Club. They recorded performances for us and you should definitely check out their work. And then we were joined by the very lovely Alan Cumming uh, to talk about his new memoir, Baggage. So he unpacks it all for us. So... It's not just showbiz, but there's quite a lot of showbiz in there. Um, And it's honest and it's poignant and it's joyful. And our discussion goes to all sorts of unexpected places. So I'm really grateful uh, that Alan joined me. And I hope you enjoy listening into the conversation. Sink in to the Scottish joy. Hello, good evening and welcome to this special salon celebrating Book Week Scotland in their 10th fabulous year. I'm Damien Barr and I'm your host for this evening. I am coming to you live, not from Scotland, but from Wales. I'm at Gladstone's Library, which is the only library in the UK where you can fully embrace your bibliophilia and finally actually sleep with books. It's a library with rooms attached and anybody can come here and stay and read or write or just sniff the books. So you can check it out online. I have been hosting salons all around the world since 2008 and in 2019 we added salons online, which means that you can join us from your home and whatever it is you're wearing. Past guests include Paris Lees, Douglas Stewart, who I think is watching tonight, Dolly Alderton, Maggie O'Farrell, John Waters and Satnam Sangera and hundreds of others, and you can catch them on our podcast and our YouTube channel. Welcome back to regular Salonistas. Hello to Patrick Strudwick, Lisa Power and Simon in London, to Alexandra Hemmingsley and Dee in Brighton, Al in Edinburgh, Lauren Sarand in New York, Liam in Dunedin, and my wee mum in Newthill, if she's watching. And hello to all you new folk as well. Soon we'll hear from our fabulous guests, Courtney Stoddart, Len Penny and Alan Cumming. Feel free to chat with one another and submit questions for them in the chat and I'll try to get to as many of them as possible. Our three guests invite us to unlock their lives with the keys of poetry and prose. You'll hear three unique and uniquely Scottish voices, each speaking to Scotland's place in the world, in history and in our hearts. From pride to prejudice, from fitting in to standing out from Hollywood to Hollywood. 
to our amazing first guest performance. Courtney Stoddard is brilliant. You might have seen her on series two of the Big Scottish Book Club. I remain in awe of her from that night. She is an acclaimed Scottish Caribbean poet and performer and her work focuses on racism, imperialism, womanhood and growing up in Scotland. As an actor, she was one of the stars in Hannah Lavery's play, Lament for Sheku Bayou, which was on at the Lyceum. She's here tonight to perform this is Scotland, Courtney Stoddard. When you force Scotland down my throat, I no longer want to taste it. Where are Scotland's warm embraces? Sighing lies seep into blankets of blue and white. They cease to keep me warm. Did they ever keep me warm? Bone broth is not a remedy when crowds of midges swarm and in your grey and overcast your fag butts on the street. Sun and rain, it overlaps and in some sense you seem complete. But when you say this is Scotland, the words just don't sound clean. Cause I see rivers of blue and white clapping hands and football teams. I see feet tripping over discarded bones and rotting wounds disguised as healthy flesh. There's an atlas carved upon my back and I can't put it down to rest. It's etched into my skin, leading me in and out of shadow. The wretched spills in pen and ink what is sanctum, what is hallowed, when it sits inside the vestiges of empire. The voices of imperialism bellow down these drafty corridors lined with Her Majesty's officers and in this country there's a certain humiliation that can come with this skin. It sinks into my bones, bitter sleet and icy cold. I isolate my ugly and I burn my palms and my fingertips. In an effort to glean warmth, I bear fire as my sacred witness. I've had my dignity stripped in this Dun-Eden. I've fought with this callous concrete and tough terrain. My earth parched dry and blood-stained. I stood dutifully waiting patiently for your rain and storm. And I watched those crowds of midges swarm and I saw through bloodshot eyes and heavy lids. How the hungry and the sick pick words from dictionaries and try to make them stick to your raw and bloody flag. Discarded bones and a gracious knack for syntax, all dressed up in blue and white rags. And in this Eden, this Scotland, its histories breed borders and hang crosses upon doors, just following orders. Bannock burn battles broadened into Culloden fields. Enmeshed scents of blood, pollen and cullen skink. Chains of Jamaicans clinked with surnames of Mac. Check the Jamaican maps, head to Dundee, Elgin Town or Aberdeen. Scottish seeds sown between struggling legs in the Caribbean in these splendid merchant cities. New towns embellished with sugar and gold claims to have recognised malfeasance of old, yet still Scottish universities are investing in war crimes. As bairns are singing old nursery rhymes, your secrets secrete and creak in musty close to, close for comfort, claustrophobic, too close to the coward slave and what a man, what a man burns tales are told across this land while Melville monuments cast shadows on lies of emancipation. 
They succinctly state it's just a thing of the past and it doesn't need an explanation, but this is Scotland and this is now Scottish government supporting wars abroad, impoverished people on its own shores, Scotland impaled on its own swords. Scotland was then. Scotland is now a melting pot of doctors, captains, slave owners and abolitionists entwined, refugees, priests and starving children all somehow aligned on ley lines, some with rebellion in the loins, some seeking oppression of the mind, our blood congealed. Handshakes conceal revolutions of the working class, how crass they catch our histories in nets. There's an atlas carved upon my back and I can't put it down to rest, not yet, lest we forget these cycles of idols and icons burning. We yearning, quenching the thirst for freedom, taking turns, sewing the tapestries of subversion, singing songs of sedition and because evolution is a magnificent and powerful dream for me. I am fortunate enough that I sleep with ease every single night. That was incredible. She's absolutely brilliant. You can follow Courtney on her socials to find out what she's up to next. And if you do get a chance to watch Lament for Sheku Bayou online, I really urge you to do so. It's an incredible play and Courtney's performance is astonishing. And you'll be able to ask Courtney questions in the chat after. Now, to a man I know and love, whose latest memoir invites us even closer and makes us love him even more. In Baggage, Tales from a Fully Packed Life, Alan Cumming unpacks the lot, including his jock straps. It's an incredibly honest, poignant and joyful insight into the extraordinary life that he's crafted for himself, but not by himself, he's very careful to say. He shares career highlights from winning a Tony to filming with Stanley Kubrick and the Spice Girls. And he takes us back to his childhood in Angus, where the shadow of his father loomed just as surely as the love of his mum and his granny lit up every day. Unlike other celebrity so-called memoirs, this is truly access all areas, and it's the less glamorous, often painful moments which underpin the values he fights for. And yes, there are Liza Minnelli stories. Please welcome Alan Cumming. Hello, Damien. Hello. It's so you? good to have you here. I'm very pleased to finally have tempted you to us alone. <laughs> I know, and I love that you're in a, a sort of a, a, a book hotel. I basically am in a book hotel. It's absolutely gorgeous. I wish you could smell it. It is delicious. Mm. No, it's very yeah, nice. I love, a, I love a good book smell. Um, will you give us a wee reading from, from well, the yes. book and then we'll have a chat? <clears throat> this is a bit... Uh, oh, well, I'll just... I want... It's a chapter It's called Agony. I used to dread weekends especially in the fall, or oh, this is the American version of my book, especially in the fall, once October came around. That was when the pheasant shooting season would begin, and every Saturday I'd find myself in a line of young men walking slowly through the woods of the country estate I grew up in, shouting and banging trees with a stick, encouraging the birds to flee the safety of their nests or roosts and fly towards a row of rich, older and usually slightly drunk men, simply referred to as the guns who would do their best to shoot them dead. It's actually defined as a sport. What I had to do was called beating and I hated it. First of all, it meant being out in the freezing cold or rain or snow all day, 
except for the short respites when I and the other beaters would be bounced to the next location of carnage in the back of a clanky old Land Rover that smelled of sweat and wet dog and animal blood to await the assembly of the rich old men and begin the process all over again. Being out all day in that peculiarly Scottish damp cold meant having no feelings in my fingers or my toes. I remember one Christmas getting a present of a pocket warmer in which a stick of charcoal could be burned slowly inside a red velvet covered metal case and it honestly felt like the best gift I had ever received. At lunch we would be driven back to the stables, the only part of the old estate that remained after it had been blown up to avoid taxes in 1955, aside from the adjoining chapel which is where the guns would have a sit-down lunch while us boys walked around in circles, banging our boots on the cobbles to try and regain the feeling in our frozen feet, munching on meat pies delivered from the local baker in the back of the same Land Rover we'd been in and out of all morning. The biggest thrill for me was getting a can of cola or some other fizzy drink to wash down my pie. We never got fizzy drinks at home. We were a strictly orange squash household. The guns would drink lager and whiskey, it topped up the nips they took all day from the silver flasks they secreted inside their barber jackets. At the end of the day, we'd stand in a circle in the stable's courtyard, our hands outstretched, and one of the gamekeepers would press a few pound notes into each of them. When I got home, I'd sit by the fire and begin to thaw. Taking a bath would be an almost too painful pleasure as the tingling of the chillblains in my feet reacted to the hot water. I hated everything about beating. I hated the cold. I hated the smells. I hated the blood on my hands from having to carry the bleeding birds. I hated the constant barrage of the rifles. I hated the piercing whistle that was blown to signal the boys to start walking. I hated the rich, fat men to whom I was an invisible serf. And I hated the obsequious behaviour of the gamekeepers who praised their sozzled masters each time they blew the head off another poor creature that had been reared specifically for them to do so and then loaded more cartridges into their barrels so they could do it all over again. One rainy Saturday, we were progressing in our customary line down a long, thin strip of woods that was abutted on both sides by arable land. Birds screamed in panic before us as they fled blindly into the gun's line of fire. Everything was as it should be. But then, word came along the line that there was a deer up ahead. When I caught my first sight of the creature, even from a distance, I felt unease. It looked panicked, no doubt alarmed by both the gunshots emanating from the clearing up ahead and the oncoming line of young men shouting and clacking their sticks against any bit of nature in their path. It was pacing back and forth, snorts of fear making steamy deposits from its nostrils in the freezing air. Why doesn't it just jump the fence and go into the field? A boy near me cried out. It was true. The beast could easily escape its present dead end, but I'm sure it always connected open spaces with danger and was overwhelmed that this sliver of forest, its usual cover, was now a hotbed of threat. As we made our way closer and closer to the end of the canopy of trees and the waiting lines of guns, I could see the deer become more and more agitated. I felt scared because I could tell something terrible was going to happen, but I couldn't take my eyes off its beauty. It was after mating season, so its antlers had been shed. This turned out to be in my favour, given what happened next. I wondered at what point the deer would make its decision to flee and which direction it would take. I saw it look along the line of approaching boys and stop when it came to me. Oh God, I thought. 
I am the weakest link. Suddenly the deer bellowed and began running towards me. Other boys scattered as it approached, voices crying out in fear as its huge bulk thundered forward. But I froze. It was no use. There was nothing I could do but experience the inexorability of it all. I could smell it now, the sweat that glistened on its back and the mucus around its snout. I could feel its heat. Our eyes met and I saw that I was to be his sacrifice. A couple of metres away from me, it left the ground and my gaze followed its flight. At the apex of its arc, it towered above me like a mythical being. Then it came lower and closer and I felt its spit hit my face. At the last minute, my body turned away in survival mode and just then it made contact, its skull against my hip and ribs. The terrified grunting and clattering of hooves as it regained its footing was deafening. I was propelled into the air, then everything went black. I share this story as it is the moment in my life that, mostly, that most closely chronicles what it felt like opening cabaret on Broadway in 1998. Just like the deer racing towards me, the first night was a collision that I was helpless to avoid and would knock me sideways. Bada bing. Bada bing. Oh my God. <laughs> Sitting there listening to you read that and I knew exactly what was coming, literally. Um, and you managed to make it terrifying all over again. Thank you so much for that. Thank um, you. And that moment, actually, it, uh, that juxtaposing of those two worlds is what this book is all about to me. Um, and I wondered if we could talk a wee bit about memory and writing and how writing this book was different to writing Not My Father's Son. What was the, what was the change for you between the two books? Well, the, 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 the last book, the last memoir, was very much prompted by a series of incidents that happened one summer in 2010. Like, you know, my dad telling well, me doing the Who Do You Think You Are show, yeah. discovering my grandfather died playing Russian roulette in Malaysia. Still find that funny. I don't know why. And um, and then my dad telling me that I wasn't his biological son. So it was like an onslaught of stuff that that was so overwhelming and so kind of, you know, life changing. And then and then so it was prompted from that. And, then and it I was a space and, and it was a space to work through all that to kind of process yeah. all of that. Yes, well, it brought up in telling that story. I had to say why, like, for example, what's, what was more shocking about it was that my dad told me that after not having been in my life for nearly 20 years. So I'd explain why he wasn't in my life. And of course, that's when I had to go back and talk about all my childhood. Yeah. Um, so in this book, it was more, there was a longer period to sort of research and go back on, into. And it was in a funny sort of way, it took me longer to find out why I wanted to write the book, what the sort of structure of it was and what the the point of it was mm. and I, I I do think there's this really interesting sort of process when you write a book that you think you start off thinking you're going to write it for a certain reason in the middle of it you sort of think oh I see this is why I'm writing it. and then when it comes out and everything you think oh that was why and I think uh, and then maybe there's more um, little uh, uh, acts to that play but for me I really it took me a long time to understand what the what it was about and I realized it was partly kind of a reaction mm -hmm. to the reaction to my last memoir and the way that I it was an amazing thing for me to write but it was also I was troubled by the way that people um characterized me as someone who had 
um, sort of overcome something and conquered it and, and it was all done and finished and I'd sort of won mm. somehow. Mm. And I mm. and I wanted really to say in this book, you never win. It's always mm. there. You manage it better. Trauma is, we all have trauma and we all, you have to talk about it. You have to let it be a part of your life. And here's, and 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 so therefore, here's all these things in my life. Here's these years in my life up to mm. 2007, uh, which show me making <laughs> a lot of mistakes that are, a lot to do with the trauma that I that happened in in my life and in the last book. Um, you you're not afraid to show those mistakes, and I I totally understand that impulse. I had the same sort of experience, and we talked about this on stage. I think when we were in in Sydney together on book tour, this experience uh, of um, of people thinking that you're somehow better or that you've got it right or that you know the answers, and you, yeah, uh, you know. And I remember saying to people, "I'm not any better. I don't know the answers. I'm just still here." Um, yeah. And there is a power to that, to taking up that space in your own life and taking up space in the world. Um, but it, you know, but 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 you have to be here to be able to do that. And I think what's really interesting in in, in your book is that you share um, the 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 ways and the stories that that keep you that have kept you here, that have kept you on track. Like you talk about running away from people and situations a lot. And then you start to talk about learning to love yourself so you can run towards things yeah. um, as well. And it does seem like at the beginning of the book that you're, you're recollecting still running away from uh, your father. I was really shocked to learn the first time you went to Glasgow was when you went for your audition to the, the Royal Scottish Academy. I mean, your life was so local and we. Totally. I mean, it was compl- I mean, I I was. I was 17 when I first went to Glasgow. And it felt like, and then, then, you know, a few months later, I moved to Glasgow and it felt like I was going to the other side of the world, you know, and, and now the distance it takes to drive there from my, where I grew up to Glasgow is like double that. It's where I go upstate here in New York to my house in the Catskills. Mm-hmm. And it feels, it's so funny that just distance has changed for me. And But it, it, it was a huge distance in terms of sort of culturally and in my experience, you know, because I'd never lived in a city before, I'd never encountered so many of the things that you deal with in a city. And, and I, you know, I couldn't, I'd, I, I'd slept in a forest. I slept literally mm. in a forest, uh, uh, you know, and noise, noise was such a different, you know, the, the sort of air noise pollution was just a completely different thing. And I just, I feel I was so ill prepared for, so much actually I was still damaged I was still you know I still was didn't know any of the stuff really that was had suppressed my I think my mind had de- had on purpose mm-hmm. kept things from me I knew there was a general bad bad stuff but it wasn't until many years later and I think I'm just fascinated by how we remember what we remember mm. how memory is ignited by engaging with other people that were mm. there when these things happened and also how your mind changes memory for you or keeps it away from you and then or then suddenly says okay now you've got to deal with this here's this memory do you know when you suddenly remember something yeah and it's and it's an ongoing thing i'm you know just yesterday actually and um i got i got a thing on instagram that someone said to me something about my dad that was like a like a punch in the stomach you know that and it's still because of because of the tv show that i did the miriam thing with miriam margulies that i went i went back to my house yeah uh, grew up and and somebody told said that they had their dad had worked on the estate with 
with my dad and they said that my, they, he had been broken by him. Really? And I found that I thought, oh, and in a funny sort of way, when people do that, when you know people do reach out sometimes like that, and, and it's funny because it's amazing to, it, it's sort of triggering, it triggers mm. you in a not nice way, but also it's reassuring and you think, oh, I wasn't the only person, I wasn't alone. And, mm. and somehow that was bonding and kind of, in a funny way, comforting. And I think that's an interesting thing about memory that I'm here, that I'm, I am slightly comforted by someone else's awful memory. Mm. But it's just, I'm just endlessly fascinated by that. And I think that's what I, why I got into writers. You know, I'm, I'm only 56. And I've written two memoirs and a book of short story, you know, stories about my life as well. Yeah. And I only got to 2007, so I'm sure I've got another one in me. And I think that <laughs> it's because I so enjoy that experience of uncovering things and finding meaning from them and finding sort of point to them, you know. You said uh, you say early on in the book that you see memory as ever shifting. And I wondered mm. what memories shifted for you in the telling in this book? Um, well, sort of, I mean, in a way, it, it was just life is messier than you remember it. Mm -hmm. And I think that was one of the things I, because I, I had like, you know, some diaries and things I'd written over the years and I got them all together. And also the internet obviously helps when you're, every move is catalogued. But I, things that, things went on longer than I had remembered and things were closer, like, traumatic incidents were closer together than I'd remembered. Right. And there were sort of overlaps of people that uh, I'd obviously conveniently decided to forget. Um, th that was really difficult. And then there were some sort of things, you know, that I discovered things in the writing of this that were quite disturbing about people I'd known in the past, just what happened to them and stuff like that, you know. And, it's uh, it's and also you know there's things that I didn't write about as well uh, for various reasons and yet I I talk about the lessons I learned from the experiences but I didn't mm. I didn't um, you know there's still some things that aren't in there. Why? Is but that? I hope that. Um, did you write legal them and then reasons. keep legal reasons? Yeah, that lawyers. But did did you write them and then take them out, or did because I think what you're describing here is writing as a process of understanding your memories and finding out what the significance is. So I yeah. wonder if you allowed yourself to write those things and then keep them for yourself, or if actually what you're doing is avoiding writing about them. No, it wasn't avoiding. I mean, there was one there's one um, section of my life that I wasn't I knew going into it that I wasn't able to talk about. Right. To write about. And I initially found that frustrating because a lot of the person I became was to do with this experience. And actually, but, but you know, what was then it became a really liberating thing because actually when you condense down something mm -hmm. that has not been very uh, that's been toxic in your life and you I mean in a way what what I what was actually liberating and a great you know the fact that I couldn't write about it made me have to really condense what the experience was and what it did for me and what it did for me was it was the last time that I tried to fix an angry person right and I, I saw it I saw it in a, as a pattern of behavior that I after that time stopped so in a way it was and and also it was a it was actually became the sort of template for the book because I don't write to 
it's not gossip for gossip's sake. It's not revenge. I'm not trying to settle any scores. Mm. It's all, all the things I talk about are because of the lessons that I have learned in order to, you know, get to the place I am now and to sort of demonstrate what I was in certain bits. So it's kind of actually uh, amazingly liberating to 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 be able to just go not de- not talk about something that was quite a huge part of my life and. Uh, and then just realise that, that what I learned from it was actually a very simple thing. Right. Stop trying to fix angry men. Yeah, stop trying to fix angry people, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I remember when we launched um, Not My Father's Son, we were in Edinburgh together and we were t- we were talking backstage and you were you were saying about, you know, memoir and having written this. And I don't think really then actually you understood how much that book was going to change your life. Um, uh it yeah. seems to me like it changed your life in, in some of the in some of the same ways in some different ways than than you know being the MC in cabaret did. But you know, uh, it, it it seemed to me to be a transformative experience for you. But what was really interesting was that at that exact moment backstage, you were saying, you know, you felt like you'd put a lot to sleep and you'd put it in the past. And I remember turning to you and saying, I think that when we go out into this room, there's going to be quite a lot of people there from your past. And really what you're doing when you write a memoir is you open a door and the past comes totally. through. And we went out and we sat on stage, you know, and it was like, you just looked out and it was like, this is your life or, or a funeral where you didn't have <laughs> yeah, to die. You know? yeah. <laughs> but it does, doesn't it? Like, you know, it, writing a memoir processes the past. It gives us access to it, but it doesn't put it, it doesn't keep it in the past. It connects no. us to it. I, I, you're absolutely right, Damien. I had, I was such a dope about all that. I, you know, really, well, I mean, I guess that's why you, you know, you, you, you can only learn things by doing them through, yeah. And I, um, and also each person's experience is different, and it's going to be. But I, I, I had no idea of the response that the book would have, in or, or the response people would have to the book, and reaction it would have in terms of me talking about being open and frank about a traumatic thing and something that I seem think is very much more common than mm. people than people care to talk about and sort of so ripping away a sort of screen from an area of life and, and there and 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 talking about how I you know confronted my monster uh, was so incredibly helpful and inspiring to many people. Not necessarily they had the same experiences as me, but I, I, I just had no idea that it was going to have that. I mean, every day still I get people saying, oh, because you talk, I, it, was, it made me realise I need to go and deal with this or I was able to talk to blah and speak about this. So that was huge. And I know, and so of course, also in talking about something, you bring it back into your life in a way that is, you know, you, you obviously don't put it to bed. Mm. Talk about my dad and about my life. Obviously, I've done it again with slightly with this memoir, but I talk about him all the time. And I feel that that is, uh, you know, now I feel that that is right. That is as it should be because he mm. is my father. And in a way, I was wrong all those years to kind of, not wrong, but I wasn't ready, I suppose, all mm. those years to not deal with him and not discuss him and publicly or p- privately. So actually, it's an incredibly amazing thing to realise that the thing you thought was going to happen completely didn't. And another thing happened that actually brought my father back into my life in a huge way, but in a way that he is on my terms. Mm. And I I allow him to be here. And I 
everybody knows about him. Yeah, there's no um, shame. There's no shame anymore. There, there's no shame at all. And then that's the thing I think, I, you know, find another thing I've talked about, I find fascinating is that people who do ha- are in abusive situations, the ab- a good abuser relies on the abusees mm. to protect them because there's, yeah. it makes them so ashamed. You're so ashamed of what's happening to you, which is crazy, but it's, that's what happens. You're so ashamed that this is happening. They're so ashamed that you're, I mean, sometimes you're so ashamed that you're allowing it but you're mm. so ashamed of people finding out about it that you actually protect the person who's doing so much damage to you. And that is something that I, and, and that was what was amazing about like that, that event you talk about the first time in Edinburgh, mm. my mom and my brother were there and I saw them being celebrated and applauded, literally applauded for, for, for about an experience that had been incredibly shameful for all of us. Yeah, and like the fact they were there tonight and they were supporting me in this was an incredible uh, sort of vault fast in the way that we all thought about this um, time of our lives. So it was an inc- it's been an incredible journey, and in a, and in a way that's made me find a voice uh, mm. and prompted me to keep on talking about about s- stuff because I obviously I, I'm able to connect with people in a way because of just being so frank and open. It's a kind of radical vulnerability that you engage in um, as a performer, but also as a writer. And I think it's hard, hard to harder to pull that off on the page in a way because there are loads more tricks that you can use. I mean, for a start, you could turn all these things into a novel, but actually, no, you've made a choice. I'm going to own this experience. I'm going to put it in a memoir, and I'm going to say to people, "This is me. This was this was this was my life." And that that is it's, it is a radical vulnerability, particularly I think still for for you um as a as a man from scotland from as you know from a place in time where men were just not encouraged to acknowledge having feelings never mind talk about them right mm-hmm. yeah and i still i think still somewhat that is the case obviously this, it's changed but it's not you know i think in a funny sort of way one of the most positive things about the pandemic has been the way that everyone talks about mental health and about mm. checking in on people and about how mental health can be so affected by something and that we actually, it's not something that is seen as, uh, it's not stigmatized in the way that mm. it used to. It's actually something right out there. And I think it's been a really, really, really positive thing to come out of a really, really negative thing. And I do think that, you know, uh, I think it's interesting. I think we both have come out of Scotland and grown up in Scotland and moved away from it, but still, you know, are very identified by our Scottishness at a mm. time when Scotland itself has changed radically over mm. the course of our lives in its spirit and its confidence and its whole kind of outlook. And so I think it's a, there's a sort of a, there's a jingling still going on between the, mm. the sort of the old West of Scotland male sort of dominant um, spirit and this new, more open, more confident uh, Scotland that I, I think is, is, is happening nowadays. It's, it's very exciting. I definitely feel like I've sensed this in you, I've sensed it in a lot of people I know who went who who had to leave Scotland in order in some ways to be themselves. I mean, certainly I felt I had to do it to be safe, to be gay, to be out, all of the things that I wanted to do to be myself. But I've that running away from that again you talk about a lot in the book has become a moving back towards for me. And it was for me, it was publishing Maggie and me. Again, it was that thing of like getting rid of the shame. Um, and taking a lot of the fear out of it, because if I held on to the shame, um, I wasn't being me. I wasn't own, living in my yeah. whole body. It was like it was like I had all these. It's like my myself was a house, 
and I had all these rooms that I'd closed the doors to and I'd never looked in them and I'd forgotten that they existed and oh my god don't go in the basement and, and I'd thrown all the doors open and I'd invited all these people in um, yeah. and I wanted to share that and that's that's very much been the, the process of my my changing relationship with Scotland I think in myself over the past probably over the past 10 years yeah um, um, I think and, that's and such a good analogy that. I think and I, I you know I read your book um when because I think I read it you know towards the end of the time I was writing not my father's son and I find it really inspiring for it felt like we had a similar sort of thing to say about like here's this thing that happened to us we are going to talk about it and not be ashamed about it and 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 also not it's not a it's not a it's just this is how it was yes you know this is this is how it was it's not a it's trying to be objective about something that is obviously it's very difficult to be objective when you're right in the middle of it but you know trying to put it out there and just say this is what happened this is what happens yeah. mm. and I think mm. I found that very inspiring I love that book so much and also the way that you I mean similarly I guess I went you know back and forward with the thing that was happening to me with the who do you think you are and my granddad and you used uh, Thatcher and everything as this as this sort of other you know kind of other um, structure that was going alongside it that was so great thank you very much thank you very much um one of the joys of checking back in with you in a new memoir is seeing you grow in confidence as a writer um, and take risks on the page. Uh, and it's just gorgeous. And the book is beautifully written. And one of the sentences that I know I'm going to be telling people about forever and that I'm going to be treasuring is, I have great access to darkness, but I choose to stand in the light. That is just beautiful. That is just, I mean, it's giving me tingles saying it out loud. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, and I wondered how that manifests itself in your life. Like, is that a daily choice? How do you make it in the work you do and your activism in your life? How do you choose to stand in the light, particularly when so much feels so dark right now for people? I, I think it's something that, I mean, I think I've always, I wonder, I, I wonder if I've always done it. You know, what's interesting that I've talked to since writing these books I've met people who I've known for a long, long time. You know, actually, writing books is such a great way to, to reconnect with people. Like, I think, you know, for me, going away, and I never did Facebook or anything like that. So I didn't have that thing of all these people. And, and, and also just, you know, when you're, when I'd go back to Scotland, it would be like to do to press or to do a play or something. You know, it's, it's actually when you do a book, you go into an arena that is much more, you are much more, pleasant with people and they can connect with you and they can talk to you and and, you're, and of course you're talking about yourself so they can talk about you too and so I've kind of because of these um, various books have kind of reconnected with a lot of people from my early life and it's been lovely and um, I, 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 I some of them have said you know oh gosh we had no idea this happened and all this stuff and actually a teacher that I, I, I had at that time, um, what's that um, book festival? You know, the posh one in England, the one that sort of Cheltenham. Cheltenham. I was at that one, and a teacher I'd had was in the audience and said something, kind of, you know, told me about how he gave me a lift home one time, and I wouldn't let him drop me off. I, I made him drop me off at the end of the estate. I wouldn't let him take me to my house. That's and I, that to me, I was like, oh my god, I was, I didn't want him in case my dad was there. I, you know, I was protecting my dad, and I was also ashamed. Things like that, you keep. Hearing, but also people said to me like you know you were always so fun and laughing and making jokes and I think I've always been 
someone who finds humor in things and and and, and been had a laugh. And I think that's also a coping mechanism that I think we do. And I think Scottish people especially, I mean, we have got a very dark sense of humor. I mean, I think it's, I mean, we love, you know, dark humor and this, the most awful situations that we always manage to find something hilarious to say about it. And I love that. I love, I come from a tradition, we come from a tradition that does that. <laughs> but I think in, on a more sort of, um, sort of spiritual level, I feel it's something that I, I am more motivated by feeling happy and by feeling positive. Yeah. And I know that I, I create an environment around me that give you know what you give out you get back and so it's a kind of self-perpetuating thing and it's just become my brand I suppose if you if, if you will and I just feel it's it's sort of it's not to the denial of darkness or stuff that has happened but it's sort of like I'd say things like you know oh well nobody died about, you know what I mean? Or like cancel, mm. continue. We're moving on to the next thing. Or that happened. Okay, you know. And like in the mornings, I, I, you know, I've been working on this new film, and so I, people are not used to me. And I go, I go into the crew, into the set, and the crew are there, and they say, "Hey, Alan, how are you?" And I go, "Still alive." And I always <laughs> just say that, and I just think it's a good thing to say because it, everyone goes, "Oh, well, yes," and it makes you sort of think, yeah, "It's true, we are still alive," especially now, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I just think that sort of attitude. Uh, is sort of a positive one, but also a real, a, 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 a frank one, an actual one. Mm-hmm. And I, that to me, it's just been, it just works for me, you know. And I just feel, uh, and I like having a laugh. I've always liked having a laugh, aside from whatever's happening in my life. I think I've always enjoyed, like the way that it's sort of almost like a sport or something. It's something you do, you enjoy. I enjoy laughing and joking and having fun, and letting go. And so I've just made it part of my whole it's so intrinsic to me now uh not that i go right i mean actually someone once said i was hysterically buoyant and i really <laughs> found that i was i found that i was so hurt by that i was like oh uh but they, but that they were trying to but actually that person was trying to hurt me they, they they knew how how that would get me do you know what i mean because of all the other situations so mm. I just think it's i don't know i just that's that's how i am and that's how i've managed it that's how i've coped and now it's how i live um, in the reading that you gave us at at the start, you talk you know you talked about that that moment with the deer, and then and it, that recurs later on. And you talk about um about cabaret, and you really take us inside that process of getting the part, deciding whether you wanted to take it or not. How talking about how you wanted to play it, and all the time that you were doing this, people kept saying to you, "It'll change your life. It'll change your life. It'll change." And you're sort of like, "How will it?" Uh, will, it, will it change my life do I want it to change my life because at this point you've had to work quite hard to get your life the way that it is you know yeah um and so you know and I mean and I, I think I saw you in the revival of the revival but um can, can we talk for a wee minute about how how it did change your life in in that moment and in the years afterwards not just your career but your, your life as well well first of all the thing that you said why I was so arrested by that people think it'll change your life because I actually was really enjoying my life for the first time and it, you know I'd, I'd, I'd had this terrible time at the end of my 20s um, when I remembered all the stuff with my dad and the breakdown divorce and just just awful for a few years and was just kind of then picking myself up from that and then and then there I was and, and I, so I, just ch- I was just starting to actually like my life and like and also I was, you know sort of single and kind of 
enjoy my life on my own as well, like not defined or um, mirrored by somebody else. Um, and then so, <laughs> so it kind of felt like, well, what's going to happen? You know, mm. I, I, and, and also I, I say this thing that because during the, that terrible time, I, I, I felt that something bad was always going to happen. I think that's the thing about anxiety and depression. You just think mm. something bad's going to happen any second now, something bad's going to happen. So you go through life with just this kind of like anticipation of doom and, and you don't know what it is. It's not even ra- mm. that rational. So for this mysterious thing to happen to me then, it just reminded me of then. It, rem- it took me back to that time. So it was a mm. lot. I was very anxious during that time. And I, because of not knowing, I didn't know what was going on around me. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't quite, you know, it was a lot. But what, how it did change my life was, I mean, the biggest thing is that really I found New York and found a place here where I felt I belonged. And I feel that everybody here is a bit different. You know, everyone's a bit, of, it's a sort of a city of misfits. Mm-hmm. And I feel that it's sort of, people who haven't felt they belonged elsewhere. It's not like you kind of, I mean, you find a tribe, but it's not that you find a tribe of other people like you. You find a tribe of other of people who are also different in other ways. Mm-hmm. So everyone's a bit different. And so I quite like that. I like being in a place with lots of difference. Mm-hmm. I don't like being all the same and I don't want to be the same as other people. So New York's kind of perfect because I found that. I found that it's fun and it's, you know, it's got, it's, it's a late city. I, I despair of, you know, trying to find a taxi or a restaurant after 11 <laughs> o'clock in some cities. That gets, drives me nuts. Uh, it's got, it's sort of diverse in all sorts of ways. So that was really important. And also in terms of, you know, I didn't realize this for many years later, but it, Cabaret sort of made me famous in America in a way that went beyond just the fact that I was in a play and I won a, uh, awards and stuff like that, blah, 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 or was on talk shows. It kind of entered the zeitgeist in a, mm. in, a, in a way that was kind of amazing that it was a play that did that, a piece of theatre, you know, that made me famous in that way. And also that piece of theatre that at that time, and I talk about why I think that is, because of, you know, it was at the time when the, it was the sort of scandal with Clinton and, um, and Monica, and so that sexuality was being discussed in this very prurient way daily on television and everywhere and, and like it was wall to wall this ridiculous sort of detail and shame and guilt and 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 um judgment mm. and there was me being this shameless you know sex pot in this show and so i think it, that had a lot of the time that it happened it had a lot to do with why it became so it sort of transcended what normally a play would a musical would do in terms of the thing so that was really fascinating to me, and it, and it, and and it also kind of you know defined me in a certain way that was actually quite accurate to how who I was and where I was in my life at the time, mm. uh, and that was really good. It kind of made me. I went out into the world thinking, if you think this about me, it's kind of right. You're kind of yeah. right, yeah. you know. And that's a really liberating thing. A lot of famous people um, don't have. The, the public's perception of them is not normally as accurate as mine is, mm. uh, people's is of mine. And that was really, that, so that was a big change. And I felt that kind of liberated me in, in my life in a way as well. It's fascinating that that part brought you closer to yourself or it aligned your sense of self 
with your image in the world. There you were with your nipples um, <laughs> on the subway, on Times Square, like literally everywhere for the world to see. I can I can visualize them um, very clearly. And, you know, that there was there was that. But also, I think what's really important, and you, you've mentioned just then, um, and Monica Lewinsky, who is your friend, is is quoted, you know, on on, on the back yes. of, of the book. I think that what what that book, um, what sorry, what 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 your performance did was uh, was gave America something that it needed uh, at that moment in time, uh, um, which yeah. was a, a space to be licentious, to be sexy, to not be ashamed. Exactly. Um, um, and but it was also a provocation. Uh, to the say to say to the people who were disgusted because there were loads of people who were disgusted by it and disgusted yeah. by you um, yeah. to say fuck you and, and exactly. that I just was hugely liberating not just for you but for the people who were watching it and rejecting it I think yeah and also I think like I actually watched just quite recently the the tone so you know you do you have a show on Broadway and it opens and it's a big hoo ha. And then, then, then the Tony Awards come round, and it's on TV, right? So it's a big thing. It's like everybody watches them all over the country. So by that point, we were all, you know, so New York was kind of used to us. We were getting the sexy, sensational sort of, you know, bimari people. And then all of a sudden, we were on going into the living rooms of people across America in this huge night. And I watched it again, and I was like, "Oh my god, it was really shocking." And like, because you know, people tell me that they were like some little kid in the Midwest, little queer kid or little arty kid, or you know, sort of feeling they would never fit in and they didn't have any. And then all of a sudden, they saw me being this high, hypersexualized mm. being and, and fun yeah. as well, and and yeah. just happy and and uh, 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 buoyant, hysterically buoyant, and. Uh, and it really it gave them sort of this idea that, oh, there's hope. There are those people are out there. And it's a, it's a kind of a, a sort of, a, you know, they allowed them to sort of wave their um, freak flag. Yeah. And that was incredible. But I didn't I hadn't quite remembered just how, you know, it's pretty saucy. Uh, I kind of, you know, touched myself in ways that are, um, you know, even now I'm like, oh, I forgot I did that. <laughs> Uh, it was part of the choreography and everything, but uh, yeah, so it was actually a great. Was it thing though? To... Was it part of the choreography? <laughs> <laughs> well, the choreography always comes from the dancer first, you see. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing that it brought you uh, was basically like every single famous person who was alive in America at that time, traipsing up the stairs to see you in your dressing room. Let's just drop some massive names: Lauren Bacall, Faye Dunaway. I mean. <laughs> Let's talk about Liza. Liza, like Gregory Peck, you know, Jesse Nor. I mean, it was just, and also it was kind of like people who now seem even more exotic and crazy because they were kind of from another era, you know, like Gregory yeah. Peck, Arthur Miller and all these, and Gina Rowlands and all these kind of, and, and, and Sidney Poitier, you know, people who were old then but now seem even like, how, how could I have been alive when they were there? You know what I mean? <laughs> and it was just was this sort of became this sensation and everybody wanted to come. And, and the thing is, everyone comes backstage in, in, on Broadway that different kind of from Britain is that you know, everyone, you have to go, you, it's sort of, you have to do it. You, you go back and you kiss the ring. It's just the sort of a thing that you do um, in much, in, in a way that you, you, you don't just right. But so it was overwhelming, just all these people coming backstage. And um, and and being so kind and nice and 
I just, I was, I didn't, you know, I, I'm still sort of overwhelmed by it. And it's, I still find it like, you know, when you're in a, when I'm in a play now and hear someone's in the audience, you just think, oh my God, they're going to come back and I'm going to meet them. And it's just <laughs> bonkers to me. And like people from, you know, Madonna to, you know, Walter Cronkite, who's the, you know, the great broadcaster who I pulled up on stage by accident there's a bit when I had to take a man and a woman and a man up and dance with them in the on track like I couldn't get the man that I wanted to bring up I'd sort of I keep I'd keep I'd sort of you know, look and see who it was I was going to pull up during the first <laughs> act and this the guy I'd chosen was not having it and I just thought oh and the music was playing because my cue was coming I thought oh cripes so I went back and I saw this old man with his back to me I went come on granddad and I pulled him <laughs> up and the audience went absolutely nuts like <laughs> screaming and crazy and I I I remember thinking, <laughs> oh, Americans are so nice to their elderly. They're so respectful. They're clapping with this old man. And then I said, what's your name? And he went, Cronkite. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> it was so nuts. And then I saw him later at the, at the Kennedy Center Honors. And I, because uh, I hadn't, I, did, I don't think I did see him afterwards, actually, uh, in, in Cabaret. But I, so... I, I I was at the Kennedy Center Honors. I was he, he actually introduced me, and then but I was you. Know, I didn't speak to him because I was late. That's a long story. But anyway, I did. He introduced me, and then I come on and I did this part of this thing because the writers of Cabaret were being honoured. And then it was at the party afterwards. I walked into this room, and it was like you know when when a party is about to start, it's just empty, and you think, oh good, I can get to the bar before the crush. Really? And I and there he was because he was just the people who'd been in the show were there and there he was at the bar and he saw me and he kind of he came over and I actually remember being scared what he was going to do it's like he looked like he was angry and he walked over and you know he's an old man at this point and he came over and like looked quite stern and he went may I have the pleasure of this dance young man <laughs> so cute that is adorable I know you was absolutely adorable he was really and also playful you know yeah. That's what I think is really, I like people who are playful, who understand their power and, and kind of muck about with it. Oh, my glasses. Which, Drop my glasses. Which, which sounds like Liza. Um, you, you, you know, you depict her brilliantly in the book. She, um, you know, we get a sense of her as a real person and as a real friend um, and yeah. being aware of her own power and her own aura. Uh, yeah. the, the, the story you tell where she's telling a story on stage that's hugely sentimental and has everybody weeping and you're you're completely swept away by it and then you get off stage and sit, what, and what do you say? say? It's a bit of powder puff and that's the sort of the plot thing in the story and I, I said and she goes there's this powder puff with her mum and her godmother's tears on it still and she goes I still have it to this day and afterwards she told it in this you know I, that was the second time I'd seen that show and she's told it for years and then I said to her it was in the it was in the uh well, it's now the hotel, Devonshire Gardens in Glasgow. That's where we were. I said, do you really still have that powder puff, Liza? And she went, no, darling, none of that ever happened. Like the whole <laughs> thing was a, was a confection. And I she's just think that's great. She's the most fabulous. She is a confection. confection. She's it's so confection. showbiz. That the sort of, uh, the brilliance of um, understanding what people think about you, that, that the way you can use your aura and your spirit and the way that you can make people uh, emotional for you by by telling a story it's 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 not true but it could be 
And, you know, and I love that, that kind of delicate line between the truth. And, and it's like what I, you have to sort of, you know, I do shows, concerts, and I talk about my life and I talk about things and I sing songs as myself. And they're true. But obviously I have, I fake, I fake, I'm acting. I have to do it every night. So I mm -hmm. fake sincerity. And, and even these telling these stories. I mean, what I love about telling stories like these is that I still laugh my head off. It really at some of the stories I've told millions of times, but it's just it's the, in the, each time I do it, it's like it makes me laugh more. I think that's a great thing about that's I guess that's the tradition of oral storytelling is that you, that's why it happens because you you know and also I think my friend Rob once said to me, he I saw him a few times one week and I'd had a I had a, a new story I was telling something crazy had happened to me and he said to me at the end of the week he went I've heard you tell that story three times this week. And I went, and did it get better each time? And he went, <laughs> went well, if a story's worth telling, it's worth telling better, it's worth telling again. <laughs> that is so Scottish. Um, listen, we're going to take a wee pause, you and I, in our loveliness. We're going to have a short poetic interlude from the fantastic Len Penny, who I know you know because you see her on Twitter, and she's amazing. Uh, she's one of Scotland's most exciting young poets. She found fame on TikTok, and she's been on Twitter since with her Scots Word of the Day. Uh, my favourite Len words are Dreech, Glekit and Fash, as in Denny. Uh, she was on the Big Scottish Book Club this series. Unbelievably, it was her first ever gig in front of an audience and she did it in one take. She's absolutely brilliant. She is a gallus quine. She'll be with us in the chat after. Here's a poem from Len Penny. I'm no having children. I'm going to hear wains and you can ask what I cry them. No what are their names. They'll be getting a piece. No a wee packed lunch, they'll be haying a scran, no having a munch, and they'll fanny a boot, they will not waste time. And when they scrieve their wee poems, I'll make sure they rhyme. I'm no having children. I'm going to hear wains who'll be gouping and bealing when they've got aches and pains, and instead of don't worry, I'll say dinna fash. Instead of stand your ground, dinna take on a snash, my wains will be crabbit, no in a bad mood, and they'll greet, no cry, when their day is no good. I'm no having children. I'm going to hear wains with a prude ancient language crammed in their wee brains. And whenever life tells them their English is bad, I'll tell them the hassles that their mammy had. And I'll say mamma's words to the day that I'm deed. Be all right, hen. You've a good Scots tongue in your heat. Um, I love Len so much. I am a huge, huge fan. And she gets so much grief on Twitter, mainly from uh, angry old men, it has to be said, and she deals with it all with huge grace, and I just absolutely love her. Um, and she'll be in the chat as well afterwards, uh, taking all your questions. Right, so to audience questions, and while I'm selecting some, let me just remind you that you can continue to donate by texting READ, followed by your donation amount to 70580. That's READ to 70580. Uh, with the amount and if you don't want to get marketed to it, it's just read no info right okay let me see what questions we have here uh so da, 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 da. uh this is a quick and easy one i might make you do a yes no to this alan do you have plans to write fiction again yes there you are are you writing it now uh, no but it's in my i'm in my head i'm writing it i'm working it out that's but that's the thought. next thing i want to do is a fiction Really, a novel after this? Yeah. In a very different world to the world that you've written about your memoir? 
Um, yeah, yeah, or... yeah. I mean, I sort of want to, it's an idea I want to write about upstate New York life. Right. About stuff that happens well, you upstate. Need, so it's you, got... need, you need to read Richard Powers if you've not already read him. Uh, upstate New York master writer. He wrote oh, a brilliant book called Empire Falls. Which is, oh, which yes. Is, oh, yes, I know yes, that. Which won the Pulitzer years ago. And he's written several since. Um, and they right. are brilliant. They're very atmospheric about upstate New York. Basically, he writes about all the places that, you know, that Trump thinks are his are his people. And what he shows you is oh. actually they're not. Um, they're full of life and diversity and amazingness. Um, and we had him at a salon and he was um, a very, very good guest. Um, so here is another question for you. Um, will you and Grant collaborate on another book? Grant is, of course, your beloved husband. Um, yes, maybe. We're, uh, we've run two books together, two uh, kids' books about our dogs uh, called The Adventures of Honey and Leon and Honey and Leon Take the Pyro. And we've actually sold the Honey and Leon books to, as, to tele as a television idea. So I think, I guess, we'll, I mean, I, I was thinking, you know, maybe we'll wait and see but when it gets made into a cartoon. Maybe we'd write some more after that. But uh, yeah, no, definitely we've got we've got um, collaborations uh, together in our future. Yeah, um, many collaborations. Americans. I'm just flicking through your book here while I've got it in front of me. There's a lovely picture of you and him in here. Look, at, they're just going to show everybody so they know who we're talking about. Look at that. Uh, Look at the that's the first. That's the first picture we've oh. ever had. And I was just freaking out about. That's the first picture we ever took together, and I'm freaking out about the fact that this is I'm in love oh. in that picture. That's why I've got. That's why I'm doing um, Macaulay Culkin. Your wee face, yes. and he's just that's as like a week after we got together. I mean, you're both handsome. He's just as handsome as ever. He he actually just gets more handsome, and he's a very good photographer. Um, indeed. Um, other questions. So uh, this is from Yvonne, who asks, "Are you really planning to return to live in Scotland at some point?" They say one has to leave where they have roots to truly reconnect. And what does it mean to feel that? And what does it mean to write from afar like Joyce? So are you going to return to live? This is a question that's I wonder if English people get asked this a lot or if everybody's just like, of course, you don't want to go back and live in England. <laughs> would, would you do you? I, want do, to? I do, though. I do have very strong sort of urges. And I mean, I still I have a place in Scotland. Yes. Uh, and uh, but to actually be more permanently based there is something that I very much see in my future. Yes. And, you know, and to make it. To still have a place here, but to be more kind of like alter the ratio a bit more. Yeah, I feel like the idea of. Going home and I mean, I think the thing I'm sure you find that, you know, you actually being away from your country, you understand much more about what it is about you that has been formed and uh, forged by your country and about mm -hmm. the values there and and the, all that stuff and so I think you have a stronger understanding and I feel that you I, I the kind of idea of those roots draw you back and um, I mean and especially now in the way the world is I feel that Scotland uh, I mean if, if, if Trump had got in again we well you know we, we had plans to flee and go back to our place in, in Perthshire and and then we had all these all these people said could we could we come to you little about 20 people were going to bunk up in our cottage um, but I sort of, and I, I, you know, I, I feel just, I'm, I feel I'm going to end up there. Yeah. So the balance will shift. So it's that, it's that running away, running towards thing again, isn't it? It's like, yes, I think it is, Damien. Yeah. You've been there I, and, and I, now I'm you're not walking away from, uh, I'm not, I'm walking towards it rather yeah. than walking away from, I'm not walking away from 
New York, York you're walking towards, towards Scotland. Scotland. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is that is powerful. Let me see what other questions we have. There's lots here. But this is a sort this is a question which is sort of related, but um it's from Karen who asks, What does being Scottish mean to you? I suppose I would um, amend that a little bit by saying, What does being Scottish mean to you now? But what does being Scottish mean to you? It means that I have a set of values and traits that I now can that now I think are very easily easy for me to understand where they've come from like openness this fairness like I was talking to someone earlier today doing an interview for this place in Chicago and saying that the thing I remember most from my childhood the, the phrase I heard in school and everywhere was that's not fair mm-hmm. that's not fair and when you say that's not fair that's like oh yeah all bets are off stop now that, that's not fair you know there's not a Nobody says, well, screw it if it's, you know, that, that, that's that idea of fairness and equality and looking, just looking out for people and, 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 and the injustices and inequality is not something that as a society we put up with. And so those qualities and, and openness, going out into the world with an open mind, and also the idea of letting go, being able to sort of let go and, and celebrate and have fun and look at and see light and darkness mm. those things i think those are that's what i feel about being scottish and being really connected to your emotion as well mm. uh whether you know in various degrees but i think we're quite you know i always say the two top hobbies in scotland are drinking and over sentimentality <laughs> and uh you know that's why new year is such a big oh, holiday hug me. oh my god so uh, so yeah, though you know, and sometimes people are very closed off about it. But actually, the idea of being emotional about mm-hmm. things, whether that's football, whether that's you know what I mean, it's something that we have. We show great emotion, and I think yes. all those things are traits that I've realised are are very much about Scotland and not just sort of general ones. There's a lot in the book about uh, finding your finding your voice. Uh, finding your voice as a queer person, finding your voice as an actor, all of that. But there's a big chunk about finding your voice quite literally um, as uh, as a Scot, because when you got yeah. to drama school, and this amazes me, I don't know why it does, but it, it, sh- it shouldn't, but it did amaze me, that you were not allowed to act with your own accent. Yeah, it wasn't even that it was, you did it and people said, no, don't do that. It was just sort of assumed that you would you know, every every play we did, we would all speak in English accents. And and that's fair enough. And I, I say about how, you know, grateful I am and that I, 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 I know how to do accents. I know how to listen to, to understand other accents phonetically and everything. But mm. it meant that I had no idea of my own voice, my literal voice. Like when I left college, I was all, you know, on Taggart and everything, running away from playing all these wee boys. And I had mm. never spoken in my own voice. It was like my, it was like, I was like, how do you speak? And it's like when people, you know, who are not actors hear themselves on the voice a voice machine and they, they freak out. I, I was like that. And I was actually an actor who trained for three years. <laughs> and so it was just a thing. I think I, I just, it's different now, but I think I just was at drama school in the sort of mid 80s, early 80s, at a time when, you know, a lot of people who were teaching me and a lot of the teachings and the sort of the, the, the spirit of, 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 of acting uh, education uh, was from a, a, another era, from the fifties, mm. and uh, where people, where you just basically Scot- Scottishness was a no-no. You just couldn't sound like this. You had to completely uh, change your whole demeanour if you wanted to be successful, even mm. in Scotland, actually. Mm-hmm. 
but mm. uh, so it was just it was and so it was it was interesting to me to grow up seeing seeing my Scottishness as a kind of a problem mm. uh, and then to sort of realize that you know it's actually an incredibly positive thing and, and one of the people I cite in the book is Billy Connolly who was the first person who did not I saw who did not at all monitor or or change his Scottishness but went out into the world all guns blazing and people loved him for it and loved yeah. his difference and I think if we're so used to we, we were so used to being told to tone things down but when someone didn't do that, we were like, "Wow, oh, actually, mm. it works. It's fine, mm. you know." And I think it doesn't matter how you sound if you if you you connect with people. Doesn't even you don't even have to speak the same language. You can actually connect with people. Mm. So that was a big lesson for me. And and uh, but authenticity in all ways, including and you know, finding your voice in all ways, literally and sort of metaphorically, is something I'm very very interested in. I feel like in writing over the last sort of decade, I found that in a way that I didn't have before either. Oh, you can definitely see that as a reader. For me, coming to you on the page, you can definitely see that. And I mean, it's interesting, you know, one of the other people quoted on the book, of course, is the wonderful Douglas Stewart, who premiered Shuggy Bain um, here yes. at, the, at the Salon. That's a book that is, is drenched in the Scots language. We've also got The Young Team. We've got Scabby Queen. We've got Duck yes. Feet. We've got all these incredible books coming out of Scotland. Uh, now, Andrew O'Hagan, people like Janice Galloway have paved the way for them and for us oh. uh, to, to write um, uh, in, a, in, in that voice, to put that voice yeah. down on, on paper and, and to send it out into the world. And what's miraculous and joyful about it is, is that, as you say, people connect with it because it's authentic yeah. and they love it. Um, right. And I'm so proud of this moment. Um, for, for Scottish publishing and Scottish yeah. writers and Scottish voices around the world. I just think it's, I think it's a, 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 a cultural shift and yeah. things will never be the same again after no. that. I absolutely agree. And I think it's, it's such an amazing thing that you realise that the, the ability to communicate all this range of humanity through your own voice mm. is so, it's so rare. And we come from a country that, that produces people who can do that and transcend all the sort of what we were what we used to perceive as barriers i think mm. it's you're you're right i think it is a really exciting time definitely i've got some other questions here so this is uh, from yvonne she says i saw recently that you said that you see george wiley's art as an act of whimsy bravado and that these pieces changed your view on what art could be um can you talk a wee bit more about that and, and how they're how they inspired you or challenged you well I, um, you know, in the sort of mid to late eighties, George was, was huge and had these really large scale things, like the paper um, boats, you know, and coming up the Clyde, and, and then the the stuffed uh, 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 locomotive hanging from the Finiston crane, and these sort of things that I found, you know, I had this, I I, I felt things i felt emotion and connection to these things not quite understanding why and i guess mm. before then i thought art was something you just looked at on a wall mm. and you just appreciated it I, whereas i feel that he for the first time was was thinking in these much more abstract themes and i understood them i understood i or i felt things from them and i mm. i understood things about myself about why i did and i just think that was what he and i just thought he was so a, a lovely man you know I, I met him and i just thought he was was so sort of whimsical and amazing and soulful and and he, and yeah and so at that time I was, I was you know a young man and to sort of see be told that art isn't necessarily you know pictures on a wall or things in a book 
mm. it's actually can be something floating down the river and you only ever see it once and just seeing yeah. seeing meaning and seeing art art and artifice and and sort of spirit in in, in things I, I love that i think it's it's really changed how i uh, and I even like that, you know, that thing that sort of digital art, I can't remember what you call it, those three initials now that you can get these sort of one-off things that nobody... Oh, you know, NFTs. NFT. I'm even really fascinated by that just as a thing of just how sort of ephemeral it is and how... Yeah. I love that. I love this idea that art, how we look at it and, what, you know, it's it's about what what you feel and what it makes you feel. And that to me is much more important. And I, And I think George was really like that. Every time we, you know, every time you look at those pictures behind you, you're a different person. You know, it's that whole you don't you're never in the same river twice. And the, the pictures always different. The books always different because you're always different. You're always changing. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. I, I was thinking when we were talking earlier about, about Cabaret and that moment um, that you arrived in America, that you kind of fully formed beauty genius in New York and gave them all the freeing filth that they that they needed in that moment of new Puritanism. And it made me think forward to now and a moment that we're living in now, which is not the same in America, but in the UK, uh, we're very much in this moment where art that you've just talked about is, is devalued, is decried, where institutions like the BBC are under under attack. Where we're 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 in, I think, a culture war in this in the American sense, but it's happening here in the UK. And I wonder how aware of that you are, particularly with all the stuff that's said about history and Scottish history. But but how 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 much of that's kind of registered with you over in New York and what you think of it? Well, I have I have you know noticed it, and I you know it's easier now to keep in touch with things about that. But I I I, I always feel it's like. It's never about, that's not what it's actually about, you know, it's, but those are the things. It's interesting that when the pandemic happened, I, I realized that artists are always the first people that that, that people turn to in, a, in, a, in, in any sort of crisis to entertain them, to make sense of what has happened, that mm. bad things have happened, and also made to, to, to have abilities to raise money for things. You know, it's all, I was very busy in the pandemic. Yeah. And then of course, the art, art, the arts is the first thing that's cut uh, or sacrifice to pay for mm. things when things go wrong. So it's got this very much. Um, we live in a culture where you have to have results. You have to see things on paper and tables and columns for people to understand its worth. And I think that's that. Uh, so I think the whole thing right now is that it's it's not about culture wars are a, you know artists are at the top of it, but it's like an iceberg. But down below, it's about difference and about people. Mm not wanting to embrace the other and embrace people who are less uh, well off than them and to embrace people who they feel don't belong. And the easy way to do that is to point out some weird arty thing and think that's terrible and that's, mm. that's uh, uh, annoying me. And it never is that. It's, a much, it's much deeper. It goes to do with things about immigration and about class and, and fear. And it's all yeah. just about again so I, I it saddens me but I feel it's you know it's like the thing I say in my book about seeing patterns repeating yeah. in your life this is not the first time I felt that that's been going on alas yes it definitely feels like we're, we're experiencing a moral panic particularly about trans people at this moment oh. in our, um, where trans people are being subject to the same violence that that you know that that I was as a, as a gay man that still continues but you know almost the same tropes these cycles that you that you talk about in yeah. your book you, that you see being repeated 
and it's also like the, the the trans thing. It's like it's not about toilets. It's not about. It's much bigger. You know, it's when it, mm. if it's really it comes down to toilets. Is that really what this whole thing's about? Or like with the sports thing that it, that you that you it just becomes about body parts and mm. actually how demeaning it becomes. That it, you know, it's it's it just when you do that when you bring it down to toilets or body parts, then you just completely demean someone and make them like a piece of meat rather than seeing it as a as their worth and their um, standing in the world. And I feel mm. that's it, it's so it always comes to these little small details about things and actually. It, 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 it's an excuse to take it away from the bigger picture of acceptance and equality and just just respect and kindness for people who are different to you. Yeah. Yes. These symbols are are, are often ciphers uh, for, for yeah. hidden, hidden fears and phobias. Um, uh, Alan, I'm going to have to let you go in a wee minute, um, but I just want to say again while I've got you how much how much I loved this book and how much if you're watching you will love it too. It really is. It's as warm and as funny and as challenging as you are. And I absolutely loved it. And oh, I'm, so you, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful to you for doing it. Um, and thank you for being here tonight and being so, uh, so open. You can buy baggage in the salon shop at bookshop.org or at any good independent bookshop. And you can follow Courtney and Len on their socials to find out what they're up to next. So thank you for being here. Thank you for helping to raise vital funds for the Scottish Book Trust. So thank you to Team Salon. Thank you to Book Week Scotland. And thank you again to Courtney, Len and Alan. Good night. Thank you for joining us for that Book Week Scotland special. That was Alan Cumming, Len Penny and Courtney Stoddart. And you can join us soon, actually. If you've not been to a salon for a while or you've never been to a salon, why don't you join us online for our Miss Marple special? Yes, we are launching uh, the Marple 12 New Stories collection. That is with the British Library. We're doing it at the British Library. The in-person tickets have sold out, but you can still get tickets online at theliterarysalon.co.uk. And we've got loads of amazing Agatha Christie prizes, which you can win on the night if you ask a question in the online chat or in person if you're coming along. Um, so I would love to see you there. Thank you for listening to the podcast today and happy reading. Thank you.